0: Hey, all right. Welcome back to ditchmedics.com. My name is Derek. Thanks for uh, joining me again today. We're going to talk about um, a pretty cool trauma assessment technique. Uh, one that was kind of born in the military environment and the tactical medical environment, but I find its I find its purpose and its applicability correlates very strong to what we do in the in the civilian trauma management environment. You know, we've got some pre existing acronyms, some pre-existing assessment techniques, DCAP BTLS, OPQRST, and those things are great, fine, very thorough. Uh, but what I don't like about kind of how we train EMTs and paramedics to, to deal with trauma is we is we don't teach them to prioritize very well. Uh, we don't teach them to with with major you know multi system poly trauma. We, we don't we don't teach them what's important, or at least that that point doesn't get hammered home anyway. We may we may give it lip service in a in a trauma block, but we don't really hammer it home to these 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 young EMTs that your role with with life threatening trauma is is to prioritize and then begin to mitigate that. Uh, based off of that life threat. And, and what I like about the assessment technique that I'm presenting to you today is it does that very well. It, it prioritizes life threats. It gives you a kind of a, a guideline, not a protocol, not a rigid, hey, do this every time, but a guideline for, hey, here's what you need to be thinking about in regards to managing trauma. So so let's get to it. All right, I present to you March, M-A-R-C-H-H, uh, two H's. And what March is, is is like I said it's it's, it's a it's a, a trauma assessment technique that we utilize in combat medicine that really kind of goes step by step and, and, and helps us look for these life threats that's going to kill our casualty going to kill our patient within a matter of minutes uh, if, if we don't intervene um, it's tactical combat, combat casualty care stuff T triple C. And that's what we're talking about today. All right, let's dig into this. Uh, March M stands for massive hemorrhage. Uh, that's going to be our first and foremost priority as we're looking at these at these patients, at these casualties of trauma. Um, do they exhibit life-threatening hemorrhage? And that's always a, it's always a tough one to, to really quantify and qualify, uh, especially with new EMTs, with new medics, with people that, that don't see trauma regularly, which, you know, you don't. I mean, it's you, you start in EMS, and you, you're taught all these trauma principles and all these uh, assessment techniques and treatment techniques and interventions, uh, and the reality of it out in the civilian world, we're just not dealing with trauma uh, on the, in the 911 transport environment that much or at least significant trauma that much. So these skills, this knowledge, these interventions, they're constantly changing, but yet they're atrophying because you're just not using them. So quantifying massive bleeding, massive hemorrhages is is, is sometimes pretty tough to do, uh, even for skilled, for trained providers. At the end of the day, you know, as much science as we, we try to throw at it, I always call it the oh shit factor. When you walk in and you see somebody either actively bleeding or you see a pool of blood around them that indicates massive blood loss, you know it's life-threatening. I, I, I haven't had a whole lot of situations in my career where I've dealt with life-threatening bleeding that I didn't know just by looking at it that that's life-threatening bleeding. So we, we generally know. So that's the first and foremost thing, is just to identify massive hemorrhage. and Then to think about interventions. Uh, that's our priority. How are we going to do that? That's a great question. Well, um, this all goes back to your protocols and your practice and where you're at. Um, as we know in EMS, where we operate under our guidelines and our protocols. Um, nothing I, I talk about today is going to supersede what you're able to do. In your EMS system, I present to you simply knowledge and, and in an attempt to kind of expand your uh, skill set and how you practice trauma management. But how you're going to deal with this life-threatening hemorrhage is going to go back to your protocols. Let me tell you how I'm going to deal with it. First and foremost, uh, if it's life-threatening extremity hemorrhage, and I've identified it as life-threatening extremity hemorrhage. I'm going to use a tourniquet on it. Uh, if that if that bleed is amenable to compression, if I can get a tourniquet above it and tourniquet off, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, why? Well, as as we know, in even civilian EMS now, tourniquets are are effective at saving life secondary to uh, bleeding from from extremity wounds. Uh, we've seen it in combat. You know, over the past 14 years plus. Uh, the countless thousands amount of lives that have been saved from tourniquet use uh, is undeniable. And and what we've learned from that use, secondary to that use, is that tourniquets are safer than we've ever thought before. Um, it, the The science is the, the jury's still out on exactly how long an extremity uh, can have a tourniquet in place before it starts to run the risk of secondary side effects from that tourniquet use. Um, some data suggests two hours, some data suggests up to possibly five, six hours. But the reality of it, and the, the point I'm trying to hammer home to you if you're not familiar with tourniquet use, uh, if, if you haven't had a lot of exposure, even in training to tourniquet use, is that this is the world we live in, uncontrolled, life-threatening bleeding coming from an arm or a leg uh, that is amenable to tourniquet use, we're going to use a tourniquet. Uh, it's that simple. It's going to save a life, and it's not going to cause a whole lot of downstream problems until we encroach upon that extended period of application, and that's really not what we're going to see in a civilian environment. Is it going to be really hard to get your patient to a, to a hospital that's going to be able to reassess that tourniquet placement and, and, and work on reperfusing that arm or that leg? Uh, within two, three hours, no, it's not going to be hard. Uh, there, there's very few places, there's very few situations uh, in the civilian environment where we're not going to have that trauma patient to a hospital very quickly. It may not be a trauma center, you may be in a rural environment, uh, but that hospital you're transporting that patient to will hopefully, <laughs> knock on wood, hopefully, you know, have a physician and have. Have providers there uh, with the skill to reassess that tourniquet application, uh, to perform some some interventions uh, such as wound packing, wound clamping, uh, different direct pressure interventions that possibly they can get that tourniquet off, and even if they can't. With air medical transport, even from some of these rural facilities, we can still have that patient to a trauma center with a trauma surgeon, with vascular surgeons within that window of time. Uh, Let's put that window at two, three hours just to be on the safe side. Within that window of time from point of injury to tourniquet application to the point that they're delivered to the trauma center because of that rapid transport. So tourniquet use is very applicable. Um, Learn more about it. If you haven't practiced with these devices get your hands on some of them the combat application tourniquet special operations forces tactical tourniquet Uh, there's a lot of good devices out there for controlling extremity hemorrhage all right what other tools do we have at our disposal to control massive hemorrhage uh direct pressure you know maybe i should have led with direct pressure but i I really wanted to sell the point of tourniquets to you about how that's you know at least with extremity trauma that's going to be my go-to methodology but direct pressure is really going to be my first step. You know, if I see a life-threatening bleed, I'm going to put pressure down onto that bleed. And specifically, I'm going to take my knee and I'm going to put, you know, a lot of my body weight into that knee uh, to start exacting direct pressure on that wound. Why? Because because I, I need to keep my hands free for other tasks. A bandage, a tourniquet, uh, some type of hemorrhage control device to, to get that bleeding controlled. So a knee works really well. It's a really good stopgap. It's a really good... Um, improvised direct pressure device. what else we have we, we've got we've got pressure bandages um, yeah you know pressure bandages have their place. The problem is most of you listening out there you know we, we could go to the back of the ambulance and I could say, okay show me your pressure bandage and, and you a lot of you anyway you don't have a pressure bandage you don't have a commercially manufactured pressure bandage back there. You've got curlex, you've got Coban. You've got, you know, ABD pads and trauma pads and all that, but you don't have a bandage that's specifically by its nature designed to be a pressure bandage. I bet most of you can probably feel to improvise one. Absolutely great, but you don't have a device that's that's made to be a pressure bandage. And so that's kind of a failure. Uh, We don't see... You know, in the civilian environment, a lot of uncontrolled, life-threatening extremity bleeding. So I think that's why we don't we don't traditionally have a lot of these things, such as pressure bandages, such as combat tourniquets, but that one time you need it. That one time you've got a bleed, uh, that you if you had a a, a an effective pressure bandage um, by your side ready to go, you could render that bleed inactive. That one time you need it. It's gonna pay for itself, at least in, in regards to our patient care. So, um, take a look out there. There's there's a whole bunch, and, and this brief podcast isn't the place to do it. But you know, uh, I'll, I'll probably include some stuff in the show notes in regards to, to pressure bandage. But there's the Israeli bandage. Um, there's there's the uh, North American Rescue uh, Emergency Trauma Dressing. There's Battle Wrap. There's there's several different. Um, standard pressure dressings. There's even some pneumatic pressure dressings out there. There's some pretty cool stuff. Um, but here's my caveat with, with pressure dressings. They're great in the mindset of if they work, um, they're that least aggressive or less aggressive intervention as compared to tourniquets. That's, that's always kind of our mindset. We want to use the least amount of, uh, of aggressiveness to, to render our problem solved. Uh, And that's, that's why pressure bandages are good. They're not fully creating a tourniquet on the extremity. You still have some perfusion going to the distal aspects of that extremity. That's great. But the problem with pressure bandages is by the time that we recognize that the bleeding remains uncontrolled, by the time that we see that bandage saturated with blood, by the time we see blood coming out from the edge of that bandage, uh, by the time we notice that oftentimes we we've we just wasted a lot of time uh we we've let that casualty bleed more we've let that casually uh, progress into shock more when if we would have just went to the tourniquet and, and rendered that bleeding we wouldn't have wasted that time we wouldn't have caused that, that excessive blood loss or at least uh, allow that excessive blood loss to continue so that's my problem with pressure bandages when it comes to massive hemorrhage now if, if you identify your your bleeding is marginal and you know it's not that bad yeah absolutely i'm gonna i'm gonna start with the pressure bandage but if i look at that bleeding i'm like that's 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 life threatening bleeding that's 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 arterial bleeding that's major uh venous bleeding that is life-threatening bleeding in an extremity i'm going to a tourniquet now you know certain scalp wounds head wounds certain even neck wounds uh if you know how you can utilize a pressure bandage effectively to control some of those bleeds. Where well, obviously I can't use a tourniquet on those, but uh, for extremity bleeding anyway, I'm probably not going to use it a lot. Um, let's talk about hemostatic agents really quickly. Uh, uh, so, yeah, the hemostatic agents, I absolutely believe every ambulance, every paramedic should have access to them. Why? Because if you have a bleed uh, that's not easily compressed, if you have a an axilla or inguinal fold bleed if you have you know certain abdominal bleeds if you have these bleeds that you can't get a, a tourniquet on or you can't get a pressure bandage effectively on you don't have access to a device like a junctional tourniquet this is where hemostatic agents really uh, really come into play and, and do so very effectively um, they will render those tough-to-control bleeds inactive uh, very quickly. So I'm a big believer in hemostatic agents. Um, next, let's talk about uh, junctional tourniquets. They're a relatively new device. Uh, they're just now kind of really gaining traction and popularity. Uh, but what a junctional tourniquet is, is primarily designed to deal with is what I just said, those those junctional folds, that axilla, that inguinal folds uh, that are tough to... Uh, control through other means. Uh, they are allow you to get kind of direct junctional pressure on there and, um, create a tourniquet, create a direct pressure, uh, point to control that bleeding. Uh, the much like, um, hemostatic agents, you, you may only need it once in your whole career, but it's going to be a life-saving device to have. And I think you're going to see them, um, kind of come into popularity more and more, even in a civilian environment. Uh, the one I, I, I know the best is the, uh, is the Sam junctional tourniquet, but there's, there's several other There's, you know, uh, the jet, the junctional emergency tourniquet tool, uh, the abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet. Um, there's, there's several out there and, you know, just check them out. And they're, they're, they're coming of age. They're going to, they're going to be more, um, Prolific as, as time goes by. We've got a few kind of abstract um hemorrhage control devices that are spinning up, kind of gaining popularity. The IT clamp uh is one that you know I see more and more. I, I've never used myself, but I see it more and more in literature and see reviews, and, and it seems to be kind of a promising concept of this basically a uh a device that clamps onto the edge of a wound. Um, and with a, a tool. Bring those edges of the wound through the device, kind of clamped. Hence the name, IT clamp. You you clamp the uh, you clamp the wound shut. Uh, the theory behind this is is uh, the bleeding stays inside the wound, uh, creates a, a a hematoma or a mass, uh, causing you know tamponading effect on the bleeding uh, at that that point in the damaged vessel. Um, like I said, I, I I haven't seen a lot of, of of actual anecdotal use, but I've seen a lot of research about it and it looks like it's got some promise to it. Uh, another device, uh Xstat is uh is another device that's looks like it's got some promise to it. Uh, I've seen it, you know, I've actually seen it used in a training environment, but I've never never used it on a live patient. Uh but basically it injects um some rapidly expanding sponges into the wound uh that once they come into contact with the fluid with the blood uh, expand soak up the blood and also put direct pressure um at the site of that bleeding and, and cause a uh, tamponade effect as well at that wound site uh, looks I mean, it's, looks like it's got some promise so i'll, I'll be anxious to see uh, i'll be anxious to get my hands on one and actually do like a live tissue uh, either training test or real-world test and and see how it goes Uh, because what's what's great about the concept of like the it clamp and then the x stat is you know treating wounds that we'll talk about here in a second treating wounds that are in the box in the in an area that we can't get uh, a lot of direct pressure on or we can't get a tourniquet on um, in the torso and the abdominal area so the ability to be able to inject these sponges in a wound that are going to soak up blood and tamponade the bleeding from the inside that's that's a great tool to have um so yeah i mean there's a lot of cool stuff out there always reassess our interventions that's the last point i'm going to make with hemorrhage control is always reassess our interventions it's because your tourniquet is working now doesn't mean five minutes later ten minutes later it's not going to have failed Um, one of the things we see with trauma management for instance with pressure bandages with tourniquets. As I come in, I find you with a massive bleed. I pull my tourniquet out. uh, I slap it on there. I get it on correctly. I stop your bleeding. uh, And then I go to work on packaging you and transporting you to the trauma center. Well, what do I traditionally want to do during that transport? If you're in shock, I want to try to relieve some of your your hypoperfusion, right? Um, To Get your blood pressure back to a respectable range. When bleeding was controlled, uh, when that patient's blood pressure was 60 over 20, my, my tourniquet was effective, but now that I've raised their blood pressure to 90 over 50, uh, might there be a chance that that pressure is greater than the pressure I had currently or initially with that tourniquet. So I'm going to potentially need to make my tourniquet tighter. I'm going to potentially need to reassess that intervention and, and possibly, um, adjust it to, to meet the current physiology of the patient. So just keep that in mind. What's working one minute may not be working the next. We have to constantly reassess these things. And remember with massive hemorrhage, you know, hand in hand, we're going to be fighting shock. Uh, We're looking at that pulse rate. We're looking at their level of consciousness. We're looking at things you know, indicating uh, either positive or negative end organ perfusion, such as cap refill. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, Anecdotally and arbitrarily looking at, you know, blood pressure. I'm I'm not going to put a a lot of weight on blood pressure, um, because oftentimes blood pressure is one of the last things to really be affected uh, with somebody that's hypoperfused. You know, our body has the wondrous ability to vasoconstrict in the periphery uh, and keep that blood pressure high, and so blood pressure is not going to be an accurate assessment. But I want to trend blood pressure because trending blood pressure, you know, certainly will give me some insight as to what I'm doing to my patient's physiology with my resuscitative efforts. So, all right, that's enough for massive hemorrhage. Uh, Let's move on to the A in the MARCH acronym, and we're going to talk about airway. All right, airway assessment. Um, Let's go over really quickly in regards to major trauma, and that's what we're talking about. This is the MARCH acronym is, is for, you know, once again, patients that exhibit major trauma airway is going to be certainly along with, you know, massive hemorrhage at the forefront of our mind. What are some of the reasons that would will prompt us to need to intervene with the casualties airway? Um, well, if you reference back to I had an earlier blog posting about airway management, it'll um, kind of give you a more in-depth look at, at my mindset with with managing a casualty's airway, but just to kind of highlight some of those points, uh, four endpoints or four points that I r- really want to consider in regards to airway management. First and foremost, inability um, to effectively control your own airway if your casualty is exhibiting uh, signs of uh, you know, altered mental status, progressively worsening mental status, um, the inability to control airway secretions, the inability to um, cough, gag, reflex, stuff like that often associated, you know, with trauma, with shock, um, that's certainly going to be a prompt for us to need to step in and manage their airway. Um, inability to ventilate effectively, so so poor ventilation. Um, if my patient is becoming hypercapnic, uh, their entitled CO2s are going up, um, they're not ventilated effectively as evidenced by, you know, chest trauma, shallow chest wall excursion, uh, possibly, you know, airway obstruction, partial airway obstruction, all these things would cause me to need to, to secure that airway for them and to control their ventilation. Um, poor oxygenation is, is the next one. Anytime my patient is hypoxic um, and in the presence of trauma, oftentimes that's going to be because of you know specific traumatic injury uh, to the lungs or to the chest wall that's affecting my, my patient's ability to get oxygen into their lungs. I might need to initiate some positive pressure ventilation to oxygenate them better, or to provide some uh, higher concentration of oxygen, or to provide you know positive expiratory pressure to affect oxygenation. That would be another reason that I would need to uh, control my patient's airway. And lastly, uh, what we call you know expected clinical course. If I had a patient that's exhibiting you know significant polytrauma, and I expect their condition to deteriorate. Um, that might preemptively cause me to want to secure their airway before it becomes an issue. Um, oftentimes we associate this with, you know, rapid sequence induction, uh, delayed sequence intubation, um, you know, conscious sedation for intubation, basically what they call pharmacologically assisted intubation. Uh, so if you have those tools at your disposal and you have a patient uh, that is, is, you know, their expected clinical course is is poor and you expect them to decompensate and decline, then preemptively securing that airway is, is not a bad idea. Um, really, you know, quickly this, like I said, I don't have, I don't have the time to to dig into this, um, each, each section as much as I'd like to, but highlight some of of the mindsets with, with airway. Um, so how are we going to manage these airways? Well, in a conscious casualty, um, First and foremost, I want to place them in a position of comfort. Uh, what we do so frequently, uh, especially with historically spinal immobilizing our, our trauma patients, but what we do frequently is we slap them on a board and then we lay them flat, and we wonder uh, why they're not ventilating and oxygenating effectively. Well, they're lying flat on their back strapped to a board and, and breathing stuff tough for them. Um, place them uh place your conscious casualties in a position of comfort if they want to sit up and they're you're able um have them sit up if your if your casualty is unconscious if your patient's unconscious that's where we're going to have to be uh, certainly more aggressive with our airway management um, open up the airway first and foremost uh, you know if, if if you have them in 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 full spinal motion restriction or you have them in selected spinal motion restriction You know, that's going to limit your ability to to do a head tilt, chin lift. But certainly, you know, consider the jaw thrust. Open up the airway uh, as soon as you can. Uh, Consider adjuncts such as the NPA, the OPA, um, and certainly be ready and prepared in an unconscious patient as soon as you can to put a more definitive airway in. Whether that be a a supraglottic airway, whether that be, you know, in a tracheal intubation, whatever the case may be in um, an unconscious casualty, certainly as a victim of trauma, securing that airway is going to be going to be one of our priorities. So use all those tools at your disposal to as quickly as possible uh, effectively get that airway under control. Uh, up to and including surgical airway. Uh, I, I guarantee you a large majority of providers out there uh, in the world today are not prepared to do a surgical airway. They're not prepared to do uh, a cricothyrotomy, They're not prepared to do a quick trach. They're not prepared to do a per trach. They're not prepared to do, um, you know, a, a, an ET tube cut down, scalpel finger bougie methodology. There's a lot of methods uh, with which we can we can perform a surgical airway. Uh, but the fact is that if you're not prepared to do this. You shouldn't be innovating people. You shouldn't be managing their airway because this is a part of that airway algorithm. Uh, and, and so you need to be prepared. If you're not, you need to go out. You need to start looking at this. You need to start researching this. You need to start getting your hands on some of these training opportunities uh, to do surgical airways because it's, it's critical. In um, fact, of the matter is if you're trained, if you're ready to do this, this is this is a technique that... that when it needs to be performed, it needs to be performed right now, and you'll be capable of doing it. All right, so in summary with airway, it's critical. Um, you know, prolonged hypoxia is going to kill your trauma patients dead. Um, make no mistake, it's important. And, you know, you've, you've controlled bleeding, and then you've ineffectively managed an airway. Uh, well, you've done your casualty, you've done your patient no good by controlling their bleeding. So, Keep up to date on your airway skills, practice innovations, um, use the dummies, schedule surgery time, do whatever you can do to innovate more. And with a lot of patients, innovation isn't necessary. And when, with the advent of, of, of non invasive uh, techniques for, for oxygenating and managing airways, uh, innovation is, is a skill that isn't as necessary or isn't as frequently needed uh, as it used to be that much is true. But the fact is, for a lot of patients, innovation is critical. And if we don't raise our game, if we don't get better at it and show that statistically, it's going to come out of our scope. And and we need to keep it in there. So practice. All right, moving on, let's talk about respirations. That's the R in our March um, acronym. Primarily, when we talk about respirations in regards to trauma, we're not just talking about assessing the respirations. Uh, because as, as you know well know, your, your, your airway assessment ties into your breathing assessment. Uh, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, so we've kind of assessed the adequacy of, of respirations and ventilations. What we're talking about in regards to trauma with respirations is things that are affecting uh, our patient's ability to, to properly uh, breathe. Uh, so we're looking at, you know, chest trauma, we're looking at blunt and and penetrating chest trauma and the different mechanisms, uh, or excuse me, different, um, kinematics in regards to that trauma as it affects the respiratory system. All right, let's start out. We're going to talk about, um, some penetrating trauma, uh, issues in regards to how those affect respirations. Uh, you know, first and foremost is the, is the open chest wound, the second chest wound, the open pneumothorax, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, anytime I have a hole in my, in my chest wall and by chest wall, I actually mean anytime I have a hole in the box, belly button up to the clavicles, um, I I need to cover up that hole. And it's simple as that. I need to find an occlusive dressing. I need to make an occlusive dressing. I need to take a gloved hand and put it over that hole. I need to do something to cover up that hole. Ideally, I would have a vented chest seal. I would have a commercially available aftermarket uh, vented chest seal that has a vent in it that is designed to allow uh, air to escape from the wound, uh, but not uh, enter through the wound. And that would be great. And hopefully in your rigs, in your kit, you have a vented chest seal. Uh, The Ashman chest seal, you know, everybody typically kind of has had that in the ambulances. It, it's it's okay. It's it's not bad, but there are better products out there today. Uh, just do a Google search of a vintage chest seal, and you're gonna find uh, five decent ones immediately. So, um, ideally, I have that. But if I don't have a vintage chest seal, an unvintage chest seal will do. Uh, whether that's duct tape and Saran wrap, or that's a hyphen chest seal, that's um, you know a gloved hand over a hole in the chest wall anything that's airtight and i can place over that wound and totally occlude that wound is doing the job now with an unvented chest seal i have to think about uh potentially allowing air pressure to escape so i need to burp that that chest seal every now and then i need to pull it up expose the wound allow any trapped air that's going to escape to come out um and then reseal it but th- the point is gone are the days where we're going to waste five minutes trying to create a three-sided occlusive dressing that we're probably not going to do correctly and it's probably going to be ineffective, gone are those days. If I don't have a vented chest seal, I'm simply going to cover up the wound, totally occluding it, and then occasionally burp that wound. Um, And that's how we're going to manage, you know, an open pneumothorax and open chest wound. Um, You know, we used used to always talk about the science of physics of fluid dynamics and, you know, the the wound's got to be bigger than the trachea. Actually, that's that's not totally true. Uh, You know, what we're finding is if the wound's even two-thirds the diameter of the trachea is still going to allow uh, active air exchange with the outside environment. So I don't want you out there with a tape measure, with a ruler, and, and trying to estimate the patient's trachea size and your wound size. Simply, if you have a wound, an open chest wound in that box, front, back, sides, cover it up with something, get it sealed off. That's critical. Remember, even if you don't hear sucking and hissing, uh, you need to get that that wound covered up because what that hole in the chest wall uh, specifically, you know, as it affects that, that pleural space, what that hole does is it causes us to lose some of that negative pressure that normally allows us to breathe. As you well know, when you breathe in... Your chest wall expands, uh, the diaphragm goes down, and causes more space, causes negative pressure, air rushes in, fills that pressure. if we have a hole in the chest wall, it affects that negative pressure. It, it causes an equilibrium uh, with the inside of, it, of the pleural space uh, pressure and the outside environment. So we, we've got to get it covered up quickly. All right, let's talk about tension pneumothorax. So quick review uh so we're all on the same page a a pneumothorax is is not in and of itself a tension pneumothorax a pneumothorax pneumo air thorax chest cavity is air in the chest cavity Uh, that's not supposed to be uh in that specific aspect of the chest cavity so um Spontaneous pneumos, open pneumos, tension pneumos. There's different pneumos. So what we're talking about with tension pneumos an accumulation of air within that, that chest cavity, that thoracic cavity, um, oftentimes in a trauma environment from penetrating trauma. But certainly this, this also can be associated with, with blunt force trauma too. Um, but in some way, shape, or form, that accumulation of air is building up tension, is building up pressure in that pleural space. Uh, and it's beginning to shift things. It's beginning to put pressure on the major vessels, the heart, the, the remaining good lung. You know, we've already got potentially a collapsed lung on one side, chest or, uh, air pressure building up. Uh, so we've got a patient that's, that's exhibiting signs of respiratory distress and hypoxia related to that collapsed lung. And now as pressure builds up, it's starting to become a, a cardiovascular problem. It's starting to put pressure on the major vessels, uh, starting to reduce re- venous return to the heart and thus reduce cardiac output and it becomes um, you know a full-blown obstructive shock situation. So h- how do we identify attention pneumo? Well, it's it, in a trauma setting with, with significant trauma, you know, especially penetrating trauma, when I have an open chest wound and I have a patient that's exhibiting signs of respiratory distress, that's, that's signs and symptoms enough for me. You know, an open chest wound and signs of respiratory distress is good enough signs that I've, I've, got, I've got certainly an open pneumothorax and probably a progressive, progressively worsening tension pneumothorax. Sealing up that hole and, and decompressing that effective side is going to be indicated. This concept of looking for JVD, looking for the, the mythical um, tracheal deviation, uh, yeah by the time we see jvd our our patient is well into a, obstructive shock that's just one more clue uh but even if that's not there it certainly isn't going to prevent me from from decompressing that affected side uh and and then tracheal deviation you're you're not going to see it it's 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 it's, it's this mythical concept. I don't know how it got put in all these textbooks, but it's this mythical concept. Uh, if you look at the, at the research with this, at the statistics, it happens in so few, and I'm talking single digits of uh, the patients around the world that suffer attention pneumo. Uh, so you're just historically not going to see it. And don't forget even with blunt trauma, you know, certainly with some of our, our motor vehicle collisions, uh, falls, you know, where our patient, um, potentially has fractured ribs that have punctured a lung and allowed air to escape out of that hole in the lung, um, you know, I can still have a tension pneumothorax. So even with a fall and I've got a patient that's experienced chest trauma and now they have respiratory distress and hypoxia and hypoventilation. Um, and and I've got, you know, I might have to do a little more thorough assessment with these patients because I want to take a listen to the lung sounds. Uh, do I have diminished or absent lung sounds on that affected side? Um, but be prepared, even with blunt trauma, to potentially have a patient that is developing a tension pneumo that you're going to need to needle decompress. Um, so don't, don't rule that out just because it's not penetrating trauma. All right, moving on to our next letter, uh, and that's going to be H and specifically hypothermia uh, and, and hypothermia prevention. Um, we just came off of our, our discussion about circulation and shock. Uh, we've, we're talking about patients, you know, they have exhibited either massive blood loss or, or trauma uh, that's caused shock in some way, shape, or form. And certainly, hypothermia prevention is going to be critical. Uh, just once again, thinking about that lethal triad: coagulopathy, acidosis, and hypothermia. You know, hypothermia out of the three is really something that pre-hospitally we can be very effective at treating. Um Any patient and and this is this is this starts your assessment any patient that has suffered major trauma uh, and certainly is exhibiting signs and symptoms of shock, but any patient that's, that's suffered that multi-system trauma, you have to suspect they're at risk for developing hypothermia. Uh, just based off of the the pathophys of trauma and how it works, that's going to be something we're working to prevent. So getting these patients, up off of the cold ground or the cold floor, getting these patients out of a cold environment or a windy environment, getting their wet clothing off of them, their blood saturated clothing. Uh, these are things that we have to do very quickly in these settings, and these are things I think traditionally we're, we're really bad at, uh, leaving our patients exposed. Uh, you know, We strip them and flip them very well, uh, but then we, we either put them on a cold backboard or put them on our cot and leave them exposed. This is killing our patients, and we have to work to keep them warm. So uh, when we expose them, we do our rapid trauma assessments. Uh, Immediately, we have to transition to preventing hypothermia. Uh, Warm packs. They sell lots of of commercially available hypothermia prevention kits, Uh, but it's as simple as as getting some warm packs, uh, putting them in those, those, those primary areas, uh, to keep a patient warm, covering them up, utilizing devices like uh, heat reflective blankets, uh, whatever you have at your disposal. Even if that's just simply uh, traditional cotton blankets, cover your patient up, keep them as warm as you can. Uh, because as hypothermia progresses, as these patients start to develop hypothermia, uh, systems start to fail. Uh, they develop, you know, hypothermic coagulopathy, acidosis worsens. Uh, it starts that whole uh, cascade. Uh, which, which ends up with our patient's death. So this is something pre-hospitally we can work very effectively at controlling. If you have at your disposal, you know, warm IV fluids or potentially even warm blood, obviously that's something that, you know, we want to utilize in these settings, at least with IV fluids in a controlled manner. Once again, we're not going to be dumping massive amounts of fluids in our patients, but controlled IV fluids uh, that are warm and helping uh, rewarm our patients internally uh, would be ideal and remember the concept of, of afterdrop. Uh, when we start these active rewarming principles and we start to, to fight hypothermia in our, in our casualties and our patients, one of the things that initially happens is when we start to rewarm their periphery, uh, they, they vasodilate. And some of that blood that was trapped uh, from that peripheral vasoconstriction. Immediately re-enter circulation, and that and that blood's cool. It's it's been cooled down. It's 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 hypothermic, and so what's going to happen is, is your patients potentially are going to um, suffer a temperature drop after you initiate these these uh, hypothermic prevention techniques, and also in our uh, be mindful in our severely hypothermic and shocky trauma patients know, cardiac irritability is going to be an issue um, as that body temperature drops and it gets around the, the 33 degrees Celsius range. Um, we're going to potentially uh, have our patients start exhibiting some, some cardiac dysrhythmias and, and irritability. So be mindful and be prepared to deal with that. All right, and wrapping up our, our March acronym, we've got our second H, and that's going to be head injuries, uh, certainly with multi-system trauma Head injuries, traumatic brain injury, this this is a reality of of that environment that we're going to have to be mindful of, assess well, and work to treat and rapidly transport these patients. Well, first and foremost, in your assessment technique with head injury is going to be mental status. Uh, Any patient that exhibits uh, altered mental status, we have to suspect uh, potentially uh, having a head injury. With these patients, you, you'll you see varying degrees of, of altered mental status and altered level of consciousness, everything from just some slight confusion, um, repetitive questioning, your traditional concussion-like symptoms, and then these patients will range all the way to the unconscious, unresponsive, and everything in between. Uh, you know, certainly combativeness is, is something we see a lot of with these patients, they're, they're They're confused and they're fighting both verbally and physically, uh, and you have to protect your your patient. You have to protect yourself uh, from that environment. With these patients, uh, as with other, you know, some of our other multi-system trauma patients, you know, potentially spinal motion restriction is going to be indicated. Uh, If it is indicated, if it is in your protocols. be very careful and certainly um, mindful of the dangers involved of trying to restrain and immobilize uh, these head-injured patients. Uh, they, can, they can go from a stuporous, obtunded um, state to awake and fighting very quickly, so just be very mindful of that and, and make sure you have all the resources you need uh, to facilitate that. As these, these head injuries progress and as these traumatic brain injuries uh, worsen, you know, we're going to see some, some physiological changes in our patients. That's going to help us diagnose and assess these. Uh, you know, we're going to see some pupillary changes. You know, traditionally uh, with severely head-injured uh, patients, you know, you'll have unilateral changes, unilateral, unilateral dilation uh, of a pupil. If you want to dig into the science of it, you can, you know, certainly talk about the, you know, ipsilateral and contralateral changes and what that means in regards to the location of the injury. Uh, but for us in, in, in the pre-hospital 911 environment, it, it really doesn't matter. If you have the pupillary changes, specifically asymmetric pupillary changes, you know, you have to be very suspicious. Your, your index of suspicion just shot up in regards to a, a severe TBI. As a TBI worsens, uh, certainly as intracranial pressure uh, problems begin to, uh, you know, show themselves and we have a spike in that icp we're going to start to see some some physiological changes you're going to see some changes in your your patient's vital signs and that goes back to that cushing's triad that you learned about uh in regards to brain injuries and you know traditionally what we're going to see the two things that i always always remember with these patients if i see hypertension and i see bradycardia together uh, those two things often don't match um I'm going to be very suspicious of uh, of a TBI and, and an in- increase in, in intracranial pressure. Uh, additionally, uh, if you're mindful enough to to monitor and catch this, you're going to see uh, widening pulse pressures. You're going to see that systolic and that diastolic uh, grow further apart. Uh, for instance, you know a patient that's got a blood pressure of you know 200 over 60. You know it's a very wide pulse pulse pressure. And in the presence of a suspected head injury, that's, that's just one more step of confirmation that intracranial pressure is increasing. Additionally, with, with TBI patients, uh, we're going to see potentially some altered respiratory patterns. As that ICP, be, you know, continues to, to increase, uh, we're going to start to see it affect the respiratory centers in the, in the brainstem Uh, breathing becomes uh, irregular you know a lot of times we'll see that the chain stokes pattern of um, kind of alternating alternating respiratory patterns Uh, breathing becomes shallow until the patient you know experiences periods of apnea and then breathing begins to build back up again and it peaks with very heavy deep breathing and then it begins to decrease again. So it's kind of that roller coaster effect of high and then low and then periods of apnea in between. Uh, So if you see that pattern, you know, you don't need any more, uh, any confirmation than that. That's, that's very late stage TBI. That's, that's a pretty profound increase in ICP uh, and your patient's going to need rapid intervention uh, from a neurosurgeon at that point. Additionally, we're going to have, you know, our our posturing, you know, our decorticate posturing, decorticate to the core. Uh, Your patient um, brings their arms, uh, feet toward their core, and decerebit posturing is where they um, extend out and go into a state of uh, profound flexion um, with oftentimes their, their hands and their wrists angled away from the body and locked out in a rigid state. So if you see these forms, whether you see decorticate or it doesn't matter. Doesn't tell you one's worse than the other. Uh, they both are equally bad, uh, and, and it's another t- it's another tool in your in your assessment that this patient's got a a mass of TBI and, and worsening intracranial pressure. One of the techniques you know I use in regards to assessing um, patients with with TBIs uh, in the presence you know of, of uh, whatever mechanism of injury that might have caused that. As if my patient's exhibiting, uh, you know, a GCS in the 13 to 15 range. So they've they've they either are completely normal or up to some some slight confusion, some slight changes in that GCS. It's it's a minor TBI. If your patients fall between nine and 12 on that GCS and are starting to exhibit some pretty significant deficits uh, in that assessment, it's a moderate TBI. And then certainly if our patient falls under that eight range. Um, it's going to be a severe TBI that's going to be, uh, profound, um, changes, both physiologic and, and neurologic, and our patient's going to require rapid intervention in those situations. So that's our assessment technique. Now let's talk really quickly about pre-hospital treatment of traumatic brain injury. Ideally, uh, especially with these patients that are in that severe TBI range, uh, where it's going to require airway intervention, it's going to require, uh, more intervention from us as providers, we would have the capacity to paralyze and to to you know innovate these patients. Uh, the paralyzation is ideal because it it lowers that neurologic workload um, by paralyzing the body. I'm taking strain off the brain for for the systems that it's having to to manage, and we're, we're reducing that kind of neurological metabolic output, which has positive effects, uh, but the reality is most of us in the 911 world don't possess the RSI capacity so it's not going to be it's not going to be in our toolbox but certainly you know these patients are oftentimes going to be obtunded enough the airway intervention is still going to be necessary be very mindful uh when intubating these patients you know we don't want a lot of sympathetic response we don't want uh we're not only sympathetic, but the sympathetic response also causes um, an increase in ICP, uh, typically when, when we're innovating these patients. Now, the old adage was we'd use lidocaine to kind of blunt that ICP. Um, study after study has really shown it, that doesn't do a lot of good for these patients. What does do good for these patients is analgesia, uh, is, is is pre-medication uh, prior to innovating. Uh, so certainly if I'm able to give uh, some, some analgesia, some fentanyl uh, is, is my, my drug of choice in that case, you know, it's going to blunt that sympathetic response. It's going to blunt the, uh, the increase in her cranial pressure during the procedure. Uh, it's going to have positive effects for this, for this patient with a TBI. Well, what about uh, hyperventilation? We used to, We used to sell that concept of these patients with head injuries, we're going to hyperventilate them uh you know as fast as we can and it get it's it's going to it's going to what about hyperventilation we all we always used to sell the concept of hyperventilating our patients um breathe fast uh it causes you know uh cerebral vasoconstriction uh reducing the amount of blood flow going through the brain reducing intracranial pressure um well, once again, evidence-based medicine—it's a wondrous thing. It's shown us that just uh, non-selective hyperventilation of patients with a TBI does not does not improve outcomes, and in fact, in many ways, it worsens outcomes. But we still we want to manage ventilations, and we want to manage them aggressively. Uh, we want to target end tidal range is what we want to target. We want to target that end tidal CO2 and specifically that paco 2 uh, But how we monitor that is, is through our end titles. So ideally, uh, we're shooting for that 30 to 35 range uh, on that end tidal, uh, trying to keep this patient slightly hypocarbonic, the uh, point that, you know, we have some slight benefits uh, from that, that lower uh, pa co2 but we're not overdoing it you know and usually you're going to find your ventilatory ranges somewhere in that 18 to 20 to 22 range to achieve uh, that entitled co2 of 30 to 35 uh, we want to make sure we avoid hypoxia um, you'll you'll see a lot of literature or a lot of protocols that say you know put these patients on you know really high fio 2s uh, you know of 100% uh, give them as much oxygen as possible And what they're trying to tell you is avoid hypoxia. And unfortunately, they're they're telling you that in kind of an incorrect way. Uh, We want to avoid hypoxia, but we want to avoid hyperoxia too. I don't want to give my patient too much oxygen. Uh, I don't want their their PAO2 to end up being 500, um, which causes a whole bunch of downstream problems and lowers uh, survivability as well. Uh, But it's critical that we avoid hypoxia. You know, we want to target that upper range of that, that, that pulse oximetry, you know, that 98, 99%. But I I really want to avoid going into that 100% range uh, because I cannot predict uh, what my patient's PAO2 is when when their pulse ox is 100%. Uh, So avoid hypoxia and avoid hyperoxia and stay in that good uh, pulse ox range. Uh, Let's talk about hypertonic saline mannitol whatever your system carries certainly these patients are going to have an indication uh for use of 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 these these agents that fight uh intracranial pressure Uh, i use uh hypertonic saline that's what we carry around here uh we've carried it for years um and and i can tell you we don't use it enough there's certainly you know a training curve with hypertonic saline I, i don't want to be um wanton and reckless with my administration of that. But with our patients that have suffered major trauma and are exhibiting altered mental status, you know, I want to be very mm-hmm. vigorous in, in ruling out TBI. And if, if I can't rule out TBI, and if my patients certainly are starting to exhibit those physiological changes and those respiratory changes and 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 worsening ICP, I'm indicated and I'm compelled to use that hypertonic saline. Uh, you'll see uh, different different protocols for for hypertonic saline. You'll you'll see protocols you know ordering 250 milliliters regardless of patient weight, you know over over 10 minutes, uh, and then you'll see protocols that that are more weight based, such as five mils uh, per kilo, you know over 30 minutes. Um, if you use hypertonic saline, if that's in your protocols, certainly just just follow your protocols, whatever those whatever those indicate. Uh, I I like hypertonic saline. I, I like the studies of it in regards to uh, patient outcomes. I, I think as studies come out more and more, start to indicate that hypertonic saline uh, has some some better survivability uh, with with its patients than mannitol does. Uh, it's certainly got some logistical benefits, you know, the whole crystallization and storage issues with mannitol, hypertonic saline, we don't have that. So, uh, whether you carry three, six or nine, you know, know what type of solution you have and know your drug administration rates, and then certainly know, you know, all of those indications, contraindications that go along with hypertonic saline. All right. Lastly, with these TBI patients, uh, let's talk about patient positioning. You know, this is another patient, uh, that we want to avoid lying flat on their back. Uh, we've we've shown in, in some pretty compelling evidence that elevating the head of these patients thirty to forty five degrees um, in that range uh, shows some some downstream benefits uh, for these patients and survivability and you know reduction in morbidities. Uh, so definitely sit these patients up. And uh, one more note with with TBI patients is, is be prepared to deal with seizures. Uh, that's something that, you know, si- with significant TBIs, uh, we see a lot of these patients exhibit seizure activity at some point. Uh, so be very vigilant, be very prepared, have your anti-seizure medications, uh, out ready to be drawn up, even, even drawn up. I, I mean, it, Versed's not that expensive. So, uh, if, If you have a patient that's exhibiting profound symptoms of a TBI, uh, get that Verset out, get that uh, whatever benzo out, get whatever, you know, phosphenatoin, phenytoin. get whatever medication you have at your disposal, have it prepared and ready to go uh, because when these patients start to seize, we want to... Uh, resolve that seizure activity as quickly as possible. It's, it's an incredible neurological metabolic workload for them to to maintain that seizure activity. Um, and it, I mean, it's a product of that increasing intracranial pressure. It's a product of that traumatic brain injury, but we, we've got to resolve it through medications uh, as soon as we can. All right, that's it. That's our acronym, uh, MARCH, M-A-R-C-H, uh, massive hemorrhage, airway, respirations, circulation, hypovolemia, head injury. Uh, We remember those things. uh, When we're dealing with significant trauma, we're dealing with multi-system trauma, we're dealing with really, really injured patients, that is a great rapid trauma assessment that is helping us identify not only those life threats, but those life threats kind of in a priority and in order that we want to tackle them. Uh, this is no different than your rapid trauma assessment uh, from a standpoint of that head-to-toe sweep, except this is the tool that's helping us look for those life threats that we're going to be able to do something about in a pre-hospital setting. And that's why I like it. And that's, you know, we've used it in combat medicine. We've used it in tactical medicine. And I see its applicability into everyday emergency medicine. Anytime you're dealing with trauma patients that have significant polytrauma, this is is a, a good tool. So, that's why I present it to you today. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me again. Um, I hope you learned something. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to, to comment. Uh, please comment. Uh, I'd like to hear your feedback, what you thought of the presentation, um, and certainly you know, how you see it being utilized in, in your daily practice. Thanks for joining me, and we'll talk to you again soon.